Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 23rd, uh, 2021. This is episode 2828 of the Survival Podcast, for those of you that like numeric patterns. Um, and today we're going to talk about, of all things with patterns, yes, seeing permaculture in a different light. Do not, do not, do not, do not stop listening. If you're not the gardening type, it won't matter today. I said a different light. I'm going to talk a little bit about the food production aspects of permaculture, but I'm going to talk about the method of design, observation, accepting feedback, and troubleshooting that permaculture is. And I'm going to explain to you how the process of permaculture can be used to address just about any problem that we would come up with. You know, Jeff Lawton is very famous for saying all of the world's problems can be solved in a garden. And I've talked about that quote before. It is not our quote of the day, but it just seems like a good intro point for, for this subject today. I think people misunderstand that quote a great deal. I, I really do. The garden itself and its outputs and the food, secure, food security that can provide, especially when you do gardening en masse, solves a lot of problems. It doesn't solve all the problems. All the problems of the world can be solved in a garden. Not with a garden. Can you, can, you, can you just kind of ruminate on that for a second before I give it to you here, right? If you haven't heard me talk about this before. All of the world's problems can be solved in a garden. Not with a garden. Why? In the garden, in the garden, especially when the garden is a, is a mimic of nature, when we, we are doing things the permaculture way, when we're doing things the natural farming way, when we're integrating natural solutions, when we're taking lessons from the forest and bringing those lessons into the garden so that even where it's not really a forest, there are elements of the forest around us. It is the place that man can truly contemplate, that man can truly think, that man can think about, here's a problem, how do I solve it? So when we're in the garden, One thing we have is a feeling of security because we feel most secure in our natural environment. And I believe that horticulturally managed environments is the natural environment of a human being. I think people think, well, it's either cities and, and stuff like that like we live in today, or they go the opposite in the natural environment of humans just walking through the woods. We are horticultural as a people. We are infinity, the end. We are are as much a horticultural species as leafcutter ants are. The leafcutter ant goes out, selects specific leaves, brings them back into its den, right? It's, its mound. And people think that means, well, the leafcutter ant eats the leaves. It does not. It, I'm going to say they do not eat the leaves. And they're pretty amazing. Like, I lived in Panama for almost two years where they're very common. And you literally see trails a, a couple inches wide through mowed grass fields where those ants have gone back and forth so many times between their, their activity and the fact that they actually clear away for each other. There's a, 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 an ant road 
And it'll lead to uh, a tree or three of different varieties. And they will go and collect those leaves and they bring them back into their hole. They chew them up and they grow a fungus. They eat the fungus that they grow in their dens, not the leaf itself. That ant is a horticultural species. In this case, it's really more of a fungicultural species because it's not really horticulture. That's the culture of plants. And that nobody with a rational brain would say, well, that's not the natural environment of the leafcutter ant. Just because they actively do something to make it happen doesn't change it's their natural environment. Human beings, I believe, we exist as a horticultural species. We're designed for horticulture. If you think about it, our brains and the, the ingenuity we have, the way our hands work, our ability to use tools, we're ideally suited. And the only reason that our species thrived the way they did it, adapted the way that it did all around the world, was because we practiced horticulture, and in doing so, we also learned to practice animal husbandry. Without those two skills, the population of this planet could not even get close to what it was 100 years ago, let alone today. Not even close. It couldn't have gotten close to what it was 200 years ago. But... We, and we think of indigenous cultures as hunter-gatherers. They're incredibly horticultural. The natives of North and South America both were incredibly horticultural. Some were full-on agricultural. And we'll talk about the difference of that in a little bit later today. But we have this ability to do these things. And when we're existing in that natural state, and we have that feeling of security because we're surrounded by food and resources, then we can be at peace long enough to contemplate and solve problems. And that's what today is really going to be all about. How to figure out, I want this thing to exist, how do I make it? Or I have this thing and it's not working, how do I fix it? So, strap in, this will be a good one. Before we give you the real quote of the day and dig into this topic, let's uh, start out with our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. I've recommended silver and gold in your portfolio since 2008 when I started the show. And you can talk to my real, you know, IRL friends and real life friends and they will tell you that I am, I am a silver and gold bug from way, way back. Like as long as I was old enough to have enough money to not have to just live on ramen noodles, I've put a little bit of silver and gold aside every year. And I came up over the years with a number that I thought gave me the ultimate insecurity without overexposure to a single asset, which is 5 to 10% of net wealth. And uh, I've maintained that advice, and I've maintained that in my own personal life for a very long time, and I recommend you do too. However, where do you get your gold and silver? The beauty of a silver eagle, let's say, U.S. silver eagle, it's all the same. That's the whole point. That If you have a, a silver eagle, you have a, you know, you have a silver eagle. So what you're really looking at then is price and service and reliability. JM Bullion has some of the best pricing, if not the best pricing in the market. They ship all orders free. They give a discount to you if you're an MSB member and buying $300 or more in silver. Okay, And if there is a problem, which I, I keep saying this, there hasn't been one in years, but if there is any kind of issue and you reach out to me, because you're not, please reach, always reach out to the vendor first, but if, if you're not getting satisfied, you reach out to me, I can get directly in touch with the president of the company. I can't say that about any other silver or gold company out there, so why would you go anywhere else? Next up today, the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. I'm talking about, of course, BulkAmmo.com. They just renewed it as a sponsor uh, for the ninth year, nine years of loyalty. So when you're looking for ammo and you want to get it in bulk and for a great price, 
With lightning-fast shipping, check out BulkAmmo.com. They also do a discount for members of the MSB. You can learn more about that in your MSB account if you have one. And if you don't, maybe you should because the discounts pay for it. All right. Now, let's start off with a quote of the day today. Uh, I might be saying this guy's name wrong. I've never heard of him before. Uh, his name is Ivan. I know that's right. Chermayev. Chermayev. I think is how you say his last name. Um, he said, design is directed toward human beings. The design is to solve human problems by identifying them and executing the best solution. Yeah. It, that's what I, I was looking for a perfect quote to start today out with, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Permaculture is not about growing food. That's just a thing we do with permaculture. Permaculture is about design. I want to look at what is and is not. Determine what I like about what is and what I don't like about what is not. And determine what I want to come out the other end. And then I'm going to assemble things that are available to me in a design to the end of producing something that I want. Whether it could be shelter, it could be food, it could be energy, it could be comfort, right? It could be the conservation of energy. If I, if I design a system that shades my house in the summer, I am not actually designing an energy system. I'm designing a conservation of energy system. Or I'm designing a reflection of energy system. I do not want to invite the solar rays into my home. And the energy that I am expending to cool my home, I want to be more efficient. I want it to go away less. So I'm designing through elements in that system to make my home cooler in the summer. And if I'm smart and I'm thinking ahead and I'm actually doing a design process here, I'm also thinking about, yeah, but unless I live like in the tropics, it's going to get cold. It's going to get cold. Some of you know that's from, right? And when it gets cold, I want to do something to allow more of that solar radiation in. So that can be things like what I used for shade is deciduous and drops its leaves. That can be understanding the solar angles, but it's all design. So whether I'm designing a microchip or a backyard or a neighborhood or an entire community, it's all the same basic process. With that, let's get into like how permaculture actually started. I don't think many people really understand how this actually started. So Bill Mollison is one of these guys. He's literally the jack of all trades. The guy has done, or you know, he's he's passed away several years now, but in his time had done so many things before he ever con conceived of the idea of permaculture. Uh, he taught as a university professor. He worked as a hunter. He worked as a logger, and he spent a lot of time in the forest. And he began to develop this idea that the natural systems succeeded with no interference. In fact, the only thing that really tended to screw up natural systems were either cataclysmic disasters or, more frequently, human beings that became cataclysmic disasters. And he started to come up with this idea. And in his teaching, he started to expose this idea. And he had a student named David Holgram. And David was a, a kind of a back-to-the-lander, like the evolution, the next stage of the hippie back-to-the-land movement. And it developed a philosophy that it was better, instead of, he, he kind of came from a radical 
background. More of almost a leftist anarchist background, even though there's a conundrum there that I, I think that he struggles to still rectify because, well, it's impossible to do. Um, but he decided, you know, maybe what we should be doing is looking at all the things that we actually can put our hands on and control and start building the world we do want versus fighting the world we don't want. And he had done a lot of research in agriculture, and he actually, um, Holgram is far more a builder than a gardener. His real passion, his real expertise is in home design and home retrofitting. He has a really great, huge book out now called Retro, uh, Retro Suburbia. Pretty amazing. And uh, that's where his focus was. And he went to Mollison with this idea. The two of them collaborated, and eventually what popped out as the first kind of infant child was a book called Permaculture One. And Permaculture One makes the case that the purpose of permaculture is a permanent agriculture. But again, you have to understand, like, Permaculture One is not just permaculture is a baby. It's literally... An infant, you know when a baby's first born and you swaddle it and the mother takes care of it, and all, but it basically over a few days, like it kind of changes colors, like it, it's not fully done yet, right? Like it's, it's truly at the most critical stage of its existence outside of the mother where it's still developing as a human in some ways. That's where permaculture was when permaculture one was written. It was that week old or less infant. We have no idea what that infant's going to become. We have all kinds of dreams for our children. And as, as parents, we give birth to them and we guide them. And then as it begins, the child begins to develop, we don't, if we're doing our job right, there are certain things that we, we employ as discipline. And I don't mean punishment there. I mean as these are certain, like you do need to learn to walk, Right. You do need to learn that sharp corners will bust your head. And, you know, we spend half of our existence with young children when they start walking, preventing them from killing themselves on, on corners and stuff and trying to round everything off and pad everything. There's certain things they do have to learn. But also as they begin to develop as individuals, they begin to have certain predispositions and certain gifts, and we encourage those. When you create, see, this is the thing. Permaculture, before they, this is going to sound stupid, but I bet you've never thought about it. When they created it, it didn't exist. So when you create something that didn't exist, it's going to become things you can't yet see. And it, it very quickly evolved to where the founders and the core teachers of the original movement, this is the 70s and 80s, stopped talking about it in the form of permanent agriculture and started talking about it in the form of permanent culture. And the reason food anchored it is pretty simple When we look at what we need, and we're going to go through our, our six survival needs in just a minute, food is at the core. But if we can create a permanent food supply, right, that regenerates the ground from which the food comes, we have now this kind of nexus that from which we can build a system that provides us with shelter, that provides us with medicine, that provides us with fiber, that provides us with water, with the energy that we need, and with the core to create community, which human beings need community. We're communal as a species. Now, that's not communism and communal are different things in this discussion, 
Okay? When I say communal, I mean that we work with others. And we always get more done when we cooperate than when we fight with each other. And this is a big part of why I believe people in power like conflict. Whether the conflict is the garden variety arguing and blaming your neighbors so that you don't pay attention to the people in charge and what they've done to actually cause the problem, or whether it's full-scale warfare. People in charge love conflict. Because if you have people divided, they're not productive, and therefore they are dependent, and therefore they're easy to control. Again, I want you to think back. How do we domesticate an animal? Let's say we have feral hogs running around, and instead of just shooting feral hogs, we want to actually domesticate some pigs from the wild. We take babies while they're still dependent on their mother, and we fulfill the role of the mother. We confine them, and they make them dependent on us, and within a generation, we have something as tame as a domesticated dog. When what we started out with is an animal that will literally kill you if it has to to survive. And by the way, eat you when it's done, killing you. And that quickly, we can move that animal toward domestication. That's what's been done with humanity. And it's part of why we need to stop thinking about even the plant-based and you know the, what we think of as agricultural-based components to permaculture. We need to divide that into horticulture and animal husbandry. Okay, It's not agriculture. Agriculture is the culture of fields. The culture of fields necessitates the maintaining of a field through some sort of artificial means. Horticulture is the culture of plants, which does not require the maintaining of a field. It might require the maintaining of glades, which are openings within canopies. Right? And when we add animal husbandry, now we can maintain some semblance of field-like culture, but in a much more natural horticultural state with things like silvopasture. So I, I really think that we, we can't accurately describe even the plant-based food production side to permaculture as long as we're stuck on the term agriculture. When I say agriculture, what is the first image that pops into your mind? It's probably a cornfield, a wheat field, a tractor, right? It's something like that. If I say agriculture, it's John Deere green. It's, it's, it's grain silos is what we think of. If I say horticulture, you probably think of something like a plant nursery. Which one seems like it's a more sustainable, more productive system when we look at the totality of what it can do? When we look at, let's say, 100 acres uh, at New Forest Farm, Mark Shepard's farm up in Wisconsin, he does a caloric output breakdown per acre of his land versus a neighboring farm that grows corn. It's not even close. On the surface, when you say, well, okay, his main crop is chestnuts, the corn wins hands down. But when you look at chestnuts, apples, plums, the nutraceutical plants that are grown, the biomass products that come out of it, the chickens, the pigs, the cows, the turkeys that come out of that system. Not only does his per acre caloric yield exceed everything and anything that a, a cornfield or even a corn bean rotation could do, it also provides all the necessary nutrients, both macro and micronutrients, minerals, vitamins, etc., that a human being needs to survive, where if you try to feed a human being off of the corn, you can give them all the calories that they need. They'll die. 
You can't live on corn alone. So we're taking huge blocks of land and we're producing a single crop or a couple crops that human beings can't live on alone. This seems kind of insane when you think about it. And as we get into the the different survival needs and how this gets addressed through the permaculture science, it, it'll start to make sense. So food, we've I'm going to go real quick on because we've kind of covered that now, right? And I promise to do things other than food here. But to really understand this, you need to understand that we don't have, you know, a fusion reactor in our body. We can't take two minerals, you know, two elements, and combine them to make a different element. We, we can't do what the Star Trek replicator does inside our body. We break things down and extract things, and then we store parts of what we've extracted in different parts of our body, calcium in the bone, protein in the muscle, right? Ugh, cholesterol in, like, the entire human body, by the way. Necessary, absolutely necessary to our survival. So when we look at a permaculture-based system that's based on polycultures and based on not just eating animals or animal products, but things like harvesting game that's migratory, If you think about think about how this works out. You live in an area with a mineral deficiency. But people in your area routinely harvest morning doves that primarily fed somewhere else. That actually brings those minerals that you're deficient in into your diet. Because longevity studies show that the people that travel a lot are not the ones that live. It's when they stay stay put. Even where there's deficiencies. But certain things are brought in. That's also commerce and trade with other communities. It doesn't always have to be you know, international conglomerates to have that level of, of, of trade. Or using things. Like we talked a lot about coffee lately. Well, that coffee's grown in a totally different nutrient place as far as the nutrient profile. And if we're putting that into our compost, we're bringing the nutrient that was harvested in that coffee. And you could just keep kind of compounding that. So food, will let go. Water. Water is something we take so much for granted. And yet it falls from the sky. Almost everywhere on the planet that people live in any significant numbers, enough water falls on the average dwelling to provide all the water that people need. Almost everywhere. If it is simply harvested and made use of well. Permaculture doesn't just show us how to get water like that, though. How do we water our plants? How do we drought-proof a landscape? We can actually drought-proof landscapes through simple practices. Who waters the forest? Who waters the forest? Massive trees. They live. How do they live without somebody watering them? In, in places with fairly low precipitation. And when we have enough forest, we get more rain. We get forest effect rain. But what about cleaning water? Permaculture can show us how to take water that we use for bathing we call that gray water, put it through a system and have it come out clean and irrigate multiple things on the way out so that it's used multiple times, not once. It can show us how to take even black water and use it to grow food. Our poop water can grow food. Or maybe we don't have poop water because we can deal with waste other ways. We'll save that for a minute. Shelter. This is probably the most overlooked part of permaculture, and it shouldn't be. It should be the most, it should actually be the most embraced because it's where we have our greatest expenditures, is in our shelter. The single largest expense that most people have today is mortgage or rent. 
with one exception. Self-employed people that are a little bit older are now spending more on their health insurance than their shelter. That's because government fixed it. So when we're talking about using this to solve our own problems, you know, it's kind of relevant to our current situation, even economically. But shelter. But shelter from a standpoint of paying for the place, that's where some people are spending more on health insurance. Almost nobody's pay, paying more for any one thing in their life than they are for shelter when you factor in the total cost of maintaining the shelter. Electricity within the shelter to cool and heat, water, upkeep, maintenance. By using troubleshooting, we can retrofit existing shelters. Because here's the key. Yes, we can build brand new buildings that are incredibly energy efficient, that are you know, some version or another of something we would call an earth ship that see to all their own needs. However, in most instances, the embodied energy when you buy a house that's already there is so valuable that you're better off retrofitting what you can. Permaculture could help with that, not just brand new builds for mud huts. We move on. Closely tied to shelter is energy. When we look at permaculture, we look at technology like rocket mass heaters where we can use scraps of wood that we prune off and fall off our trees to heat an entire home or to do all of our cooking, or all of our canning. We look at solar, both active solar, like photovoltaic panels, or solar hot water heaters, and passive solar, like building technology. See, this is where they merge together. But how can we either produce energy, reduce the consumption of energy, or the best solutions always are, how do we eliminate the need for energy in this system at all? That doesn't mean, maybe that's not the right way to put it. How do we eliminate the need for any additional sources of energy in this system? See, I've gotten flagged for this, but I've said that in the end, all energy is solar. All energy is solar. If you look at fossil fuels, and don't give me the shit about fossil fuels are not from fossils, it's bullshit. Of course they are. Study the geology and you'll understand how it actually works. No, it's not all from dinosaurs, for God's sake. Most of it's from plankton. But... When we look at that, that incredible wealth of energy that is a lump of coal or a, a quart of oil, where did it come from? It came either from some sort of plant material or animal that consumed plants, or an animal that consumed an animal that consumed plants. That's where it all comes from. Most of it's from plants. Well, where do they get their energy from? The sun. I know wind. Why do we have wind currents on our, our planet? Because we have an atmosphere and we have solar activity. So it's solar. Even nuclear energy. How did those heavy elements like uranium and plutonium and radium, etc., how did they get formed in ancient stars? So maybe not our sun, but some sun. Got it? Like, it's all solar. And when we understand that, then we realize that there's energy everywhere all the time. There's literally energy in falling rain. Of course there is. Gravity acting on a body falling from the sky that impacts the ground is the exertion of energy. If you doubt that rain is energy, go look at a canyon sometime. Go look at the damage done to people's houses where water under pressure came out of broken pipes in, in houses in Texas during this, this last winter storm. So, so energy is everywhere. So when I say, how do we eliminate the need for energy? What I'm really saying is, how do we use the energies that are already there to accomplish everything that we need? 
Next, security. Security, when we talk about it as a survival need, most people immediately, if I say security, most of you probably thought something to do with self-defense, a gun, uh, perimeter fencing, etc. That's a huge part of security. But let's think about security a little bit more broadly. I think we should think about a lot of things a little bit more broadly. Contemplation is something that doesn't happen enough in a world anymore. So if you want to see a place in the world where security is at the edge of what is tolerable to be a human being, where you're literally, when you walk down the street, you have a reasonable expectation that you could be dead by the time you get where you're going. Even though you're not bothering anybody, you're not going to stupid places with stupid people and doing stupid things. You, you simply must go from your house to the market and back because you have to. You want to know places that are like that? The number one resource that they're lacking, the one number one form of security they lack is food. They lack food security. And even the places that, like, okay, there's a market and there's plenty of food in there, that food is all imported, and they're not able to produce for themselves. You want to see a society decay, take away its food security. So that's part of security. The next thing is, do people feel that they will be safe in their homes from a standpoint of not just roving, roving marauders, but from the elements? You want to see a place with bad, you know, bad overall security, go to a place where they don't know how to build houses and earthquakes still drop houses on top of people. Because as you get into situations where death is more common, respect for life declines. I know that seems crazy, but it's because people develop coping mechanisms. People develop coping mechanisms. If you live in a place where people generally live to be old and die of old age, no one gets shot, no one gets killed, you know, in, in some sort of murder, people don't tend to die of, of preventable diseases, and somebody gets shot or somebody gets a preventable disease and dies, it's, it's horrific. Oh my God, he died. Even if it's someone you don't really know, you just heard about, like they live down the road, you know, Bill's cousin's second uncle's friend died of something, got shot in his bedroom. <laughs> Nephew went in and killed him because he was angry. Oh, you're horrified. If you live in a place where you get that kind of news on a daily basis, you become desensitized to it. So when shelter itself fails to prevent people from dying, security declines. The more people feel that tomorrow everything's going to be okay, in general, the greater the security that you have. That doesn't mean there's not bad people in good places at all times. But that's basic security. Now, health and sanitation. This is entwined to food. It's entwined to water. It's entwined with shelter. It's entwined with energy. It's entwined with security. It's a... It's one of the two reasons it's often left out in wilderness survival courses. I mean, in wilderness survival courses, if you have to take a dump, you just go off in the tree, kick some dirt to the side, take a dump, and cover it over. So we don't think about health and sanitation to the level. We think about wilderness survival. We're just trying to get the hell out of the wilderness. We're not trying to live there with wilderness survival, at least mostly the way that it's taught. When we start thinking about, hey, I'm going to live here. This is going to be my dwelling I'm going to raise a family here. We have to think about the sanitation. We have to think about, well, what do we do with our waste? Do we use a septic? It's not actually a horrible solution. It, it, it recycles the nutrient into the ground. Do we use composting toilets? Are we tied into a city sewer grid? That's probably the least desirable solution for human excrement and waste. It's the one we have, 
It's certainly not one I wish to turn off, but it's one I want to try to turn away from. But think about health as a whole. I said that the largest expense that people, many people have today now is no longer a mortgage payment. Total cost of shelter generally is still higher, but for many people it's now a health insurance. I pay more for health insurance than I used to pay for rent on an apartment plus the electric bill. Not that long ago. Maybe 15, 20 years ago. So about 20, 20, okay, 25 years ago. It's insane to me. It's insane to me what my wife and I pay for health insurance. And it doesn't cover anything. It literally doesn't cover anything. It's, it's preposterous. But why? Why? And I'll tell you why. I, I don't like to defend insurance companies any more than I have to, but in the end, I understand to a degree why. Providing health care to people is incredibly expensive today. There's reasons that are not necessary. The level of regulation and bureaucracy and administration we have is stupid. There's probably friggin' 10 administrators to every doctor or nurse now. And, and that's, a, that's a wrong-ended solution. But a lot of it is, well, how many people are going to need to have a triple bypass this year? That's expensive. And, and honestly, it should be. Think about the level of training required by a physician to be able to crack your chest open and remove parts and replace three arteries or veins from your heart without killing you. That's not something you go, you know, you take correspondence school to, to be able to do. So that's expensive. But how many of them are we doing that we should never have to do? It's directly due to our diets, our lack of exercise, and our lack of connection to natural systems. We can address all of those needs with permaculture. So if you listen to this show, even if you're not a big-time gardener, you probably are interested in your survival needs. Now, let's also talk about systems thinking, and this is where this moves out beyond even our survival needs, just things that we want to have, problems we wish to solve. So th let's talk about two aspects of this. I'm going to talk about design, and then I'm going to talk about troubleshooting. And when I talk about design here, I am talking from the permaculture perspective. So you, know, you could apply this to designing a garden or designing your entire homestead or designing an animal system. But you could apply this to designing a car. You could apply this to designing anything that you can conceive of or even has not yet been conceived of that people might design. So the first step in the design process is to determine what you want. And that's not, I want a widget ABC. No, what you want is the result. This is the old saying, if you don't want a drill bit, you want a hole. I want a hole. Okay, how big? In what? For what purpose? Right. This is how we come at design. I want this result. And I want this result for these reasons. And I want this result to be how, do how long do I want a hole to be there? Right. Do I want the hole to stay a hole? Do I want it to fill itself back in? Do I want it to fill itself back in and open back up? You know, like a solenoid. That's exactly, if you think of what is a solenoid, it's a hole <laughs> that closes and opens based on a signal. That's what, that's what it is. I know it didn't seem like it, but really, I mean, down at its basal level it is, so we determine what we want. Then we have to understand our design environment. When I say environment, and we're talking about permaculture, I think, well, USDA Zone 8, right? Climate is part of your environment. But, you know, how much money you have is part of your environment. How much time you have 
is part of your environment. You're trying to design a thing, and it's like a long-term goal. It's way different than I'm trying to design a thing so I don't die tomorrow. That's part of your environment. How much help do you have? Right. So that moves straight into the next step, which is examining what you have available. If you have a lot of sticks around, and sticks can be used in your design, maybe they, maybe they should be. If your design calls for steel I-beams and you have no way to possibly access a steel I-beam, you have to come up with some other way to get the goal accomplished. I know this all sounds very rudimentary, but we, we don't teach this and we damn sure don't learn this in America today or in the, in the, in the Western world. We don't learn to think about it this way. And this is, this is why even when you're like, oh, of course. But the reason it's important to say these things, to look into these things and to think about these things is it's the reason that people sit in the middle of a disaster that have the resource they need to solve the problem and don't. It's the reason that there's people on social media right now talking about how all their food went bad because their power went out. They were able to keep their house warm enough during this, this power outage to not freeze to death, but that caused the temperature in the refrigerator to go up to a high enough level that the food spoiled while it was below freezing outside. And they probably had a, almost everybody I know has a cooler. So all the stuff in the freezer could have just went in some trash bags and been set out on the porch And by the time the temperature went above freezing, by the way, guys, all you would have kept in the shade, it would have stayed frozen, power was back on for 99% of people. And if people needed to keep food cool but not frozen, it could have come out of the refrigerator and went into a cooler, and then you could have collected the snow that was laying on the ground, put it in your cooler, and let it sit in your house. And that way it would have been cold but not frozen. And you could have even made ice simply by putting things outside with water in them. You could have literally put ice trays outside, and they would have froze faster during this situation than most people's freezers would freeze them. Because it was colder than most people's freezer temperature. And yet people had their food go bad. Because we don't think this way. We don't think about examining what we have first. And that's really important in a design. Because one of your limiting factors of the design, we already talked about, is money and ability to procure things, whether you can get it for money or you just can't get it because it's not there. By working with what you have first, you also end up generally in a situation where what you're doing is easily replicated and is often highly sustainable. If we're using something that grows wood, we can grow more wood. So if we have a way of heating our house and we're doing it with a pellet stove, it's actually a pretty damn good solution. But we're dependent upon somebody else to make us pellets. If we develop something like a rocket stove as our solution, and we have trees that are easily coppiced or pollarded, and every year we can just take a little bit every day and stockpile it, then we, for, for our fuel needs and our heating needs, we are infinitely sustainable. You cut the top of the tree, it grows back. As long as you factor into your design how much you need. So we want to always examine what we have and what we can easily get and reasonably depend on. And then we go to more what I would call like exotic things. Things that have to be, if you want to do this, you got to get that. And it comes from way over there and it has to be shipped to you. When we're using that in a design, it is imperative that that item be the most durable, 
longest lasting thing that we can get to do that because it's not easily replaced and if it's it, it, and if it, and it's probably the item that we want a second one on the shelf a pump in a system should have a sister pump that looks just like it on a shelf because you can't just make another pump and you can't always fix the one that you have right so maybe you're not designing a pump but you're designing a system that uses a pump and that's that thing we can't go outside and carve a pump out of a pumpkin right even though it says pumpkin it's not a pump all right then Once we've examined what we have and we figure out what we need, then we decide if it's worth it. I've designed a lot of things I've never built. Because when I looked at it in the end, I said the amount of energy and effort and maintenance to go into this thing will perpetually exceed anything that ever comes out of it. It will never give me an ROI. And I, I factor pleasure and beauty, and lifestyle into the ROI. It's not always a calorie-for-calorie calorie exchange in my, my designs. It's, it's, it's certainly not always, can I get this cheaper from this system than I can get it from a market? Because if it's perpetually available, I can depend on it, but I can't depend on the market. If you doubt that, go buy a, go buy a loaf of bread in Dallas, Texas right now. Go ahead. I'll wait. Back yet? Do you get any bread? Probably not. It's been five days since the frost is gone and the, the heat's back on, and a lot of things are still very, very in short supply in the supermarkets around here. It's not a massive food shortage. It's going to go on for eons or whatever, like the hypesters are making. But it's a problem for people, not a problem for me. I don't even care. I don't even care. It's not, it doesn't affect my life at all, but that's because I designed the lifestyle. Designing is not always a thing. Sometimes it's the way that you live. So in a design, is this worth it? And then the last process in the design is connecting everything together. We figure out all the elements that exist here, all the elements we have to bring in, and the way all those elements are connected together, and then we make the connections. If it's a complex thing, we might make the connections on paper first, but eventually we have to, like Tinker Toys, you got to start putting it together and see how it works. So once we've done design, that's where we're going to get into troubleshooting. Because when you design a system, inevitably something breaks. Sometimes you design it, you turn it on, and it breaks right away. Sometimes you design it, you turn it on, it works for a time, and then it breaks. The beauty is when you design something, you're probably going to be pretty good at troubleshooting it. Because you built every piece of it, so you know how it goes together. But this is troubleshooting in a nutshell. Number one, determine what was working, what was working before it broke, or what should be working that never worked. So you designed a new thing, you turned it on, it didn't go. Whatever go means, it didn't happen. Or it was going, and it stopped going. Whatever going means for that system. So we, all right, let's start at the top of the system. This is like, if it's an electronic device, did somebody kick the plug out of the wall? Honestly, that is the number one problem in a lot of these, a lot of systems. Nope, it's still plugged in. Okay. The place it's plugged in, is there power there? And using a you know a, a piece of test equipment to determine that, right? But you can just take another device that you know works and plug it in. So a lamp off the table. I'm going to unplug this lamp, go over here, plug it in. Yeah, it works. Okay, there's power. Oh, there's no power there. What would you do? There's power in the house. There's not power out of that outlet. Circuit breaker. So this is troubleshooting. You go to circuit breaker. You check the breaker. 
is tripped. Flip it back over. Power comes on, problem solved. Flip the breaker, and it immediately flips itself back. It says, no, 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 danger, Will Robinson. You're drawing too much power. Well, is it a new device? Are you simply asking for more from the circuit than it can give you? Or did something cause a short or an excessive draw power? And you keep working. You start out what was working. You determine what failed. Once you determine what failed, you take corrective action based on the most logical first step. Again, the breaker's tripped. Huh. Click. Comes back on. That's logical. You have a pump. Pump's running. Boom. Water doesn't come out the other end. And water did come out the other end. It's probably a clog. It's either in the pump or the pipe. How would you determine that? It depends on what you have available. The first thing I would do, disconnect the pipe from the pump and hold the pump high enough that the out discharge, if it's a submersible pump, is above the water level. The pump starts pumping water, clogs in the pipe. Pump doesn't pump water, clogs in the pump. If it's in the pipe, simple solution might be hook up an air compressor to it and blow the sludge out of it. If it's in the pump, there's probably a cover that you can remove and there's an intake. What's going on there? Did the pump break or is it clogged? We, we take corrective action based on the most logical first step, which is the easy thing that's safe to do. Then we test the results. Huh, look, there's all this shit stuck in the intake of my pump. Let's rinse it all out, put it back together, hook it back up, plug it back in. Water comes out the other end. I have fixed the problem. Water doesn't come out the other end. I have not fixed the problem. You test the results. If the problem's not rectified, you continue until you find and correct the actual problem or you determine that the problem is not rectifiable. Now, sometimes not rectifiable means I can't fix it with what I have available. I need something that has to come from far away, and I don't have it right now. Right? So that I might come up with a bypass solution in the interim, some short-term gap solution. But eventually I want a permanent solution. That might be I'm going to change and alter the design or I'm just going to fix the problem. There's nothing really wrong with the design. This is a thing that happens. And so if I'm driving my car and I start hearing a little bit of a squeal around the brakes because I've gotten down to where the brakes still have padding, but there's these little clips that go on the, on the brake shoes, And they start to just barely rub on my rotors to tell me, hey, dummy, if you keep doing this, you're going to be grinding your rotors with metal. I put new brakes on the car. I either pay somebody or I do it myself. I'm not going to design away that problem. I'm not saying we can't come up with a braking technology that doesn't wear out, but we haven't yet. And you're probably not going to design it, or you're going to end up very, very wealthy from a patent, right, one or the other. So in that instance... The solution is to make sure I have brake pads available in a vehicle that's going to need that replacement. Just as one way to think about it. Um, so we want to know if the problem can be prevented from recurring. And if we can change things in the design so that the problem won't come back at all, then we do that. Or if we realize this is a systemic limitation. Not everything can be designed to be infinitely sustainable. Some of the most sustainable systems in humanity 
still need to occasionally be rebooted. There's cultures, for instance, where the flooring in houses was compacted dirt. That's what the floor was, just compacted dirt. And if there's a, you know, something happens, you bring a little more dirt in and compact it. And about once every hundred years, all that dirt is taken out of the home and used in agriculture. It's used to grow plants because it's got all kinds of embodied minerals and, and energy in it, and it's replaced. So even a dirt floor has a maintenance to it, right? Um, so if we find that the problem's not preventable, then we need to, one, document the problem and the solution. We need to not just know what the problem was. We need to document it somehow. Because the next person to face the problem might not be us. We might not be there. And today, boy, you know, it would be real easy to take some pictures, make some notes, and put a file somewhere that could be accessed by somebody else in the future. Just saying, really, really easy. Then we need to put what is necessary for correction into inventory. So if this is a system that will occasionally have this piece, part, component, etc., break down, And it's not something that we can go out and just get another one from our own land or across the street. If we're going to rely on a third party somewhere for it, it's not necessarily bad. But if it's a critical component, you should probably have a spare one on the shelf. Like I said, a pump in an aquatic system, you should have a spare one on the shelf. And if you don't have the budget initially, you really need to think about what you're doing. Or you can phase into it. So it's reasonable to expect that a pump would last well over a year if it's a good pump. So we might buy a pump. We might run it for about a year. We might take good care of it. When we have the budget for a second one, we might bring the second pump in, clean and service the first pump, and put it on the shelf so that the used pump is the backup. And now we have more longevity out of the primary. However you want to do it is fine, but we need to make sure If something is necessary for a system, and when I say necessary, I mean if you don't have this system running, whatever you rely on it for is going to go away. Or it's going to kill things. Things are going to die. Or the damage that it's going to cause is going to exceed the cost of just having a replacement on hand. It's going to be extremely expensive to fix because you didn't have a backup. Like bursted pipes in a house would be one example of that. Next, You need to train anyone using it to identify and correct the problem. You don't have a, a known problem, right? You know that this particular system has this problem. And a lot of times, the correction is not necessarily you need a part. You need a procedure. I like systems that require procedures to fix when they, when they fail way more than I like systems that require parts. Parts necessitate that there be a component. Here's an example. When I was in the Army, um, our five-ton cargo trucks, I think they were 900 series if I remember right, had a valve in them. It was a master air valve. We referred to it as a UFO valve. And occasionally those valves, because they were sitting and those trucks were not really used as much as they should have been. There's a lot of vehicles in the military that sit way more than they roll. And cause, it's because you have stationary units that are designed to be mobile if, they, if, they, if it becomes required. So, you know, I was in an aviation unit. We had a motor pool with all these five-ton cargo trucks. We had a bunch of pilots and techs that worked on, on the aircraft. And the airfield was 10 miles from the motor pool. 
in the opposite direction from the barracks. Most of those guys only showed up for their weekly PMCS, which they skirted by their preventive maintenance checks and services. It's like check your air filter and stuff like that. So that vehicle didn't roll. So eventually those valves would dry out. And a guy'd come and he'd say, The vehicle won't hold air, so the fail safes on the brakes are locked up and something's wrong. And the solution, according to the manual, once you determined it was this valve, is you take the valve out, you send it back to be rebuilt. And you put a new valve in. Well, what you actually do is you take the valve apart, you grease all the O-rings, you put it back together, and it works. And if you then add the procedure, even though the book doesn't tell you to, once a year, every vehicle that uses one of these valves should be disassembled, serviced, and put back in place. They never fail. They literally Never fail again. If if you if you grease all of the the gaskets in them, they, I, I mean maybe they feel I've never seen one that was serviced fail. Even though the book doesn't say to. Well, that's a procedural thing. I don't need anything to do that except grease, and I can probably come up with some form of natural grease. Pig lard would have worked just as good as the grease that we were using from the tool shed. So I like systems to be designed so that failures can be rectified with procedure or re, re, you know, very available components. And I want people that are going to use it to be trained before they need to know, if possible, hey, this thing breaks, here's how to fix it. Next, if possible, you want to create redundancy in the system. So if we're doing an aquatic system and we have a pump, we know we need a spare pump. But if we have a second pump, And one pump is on grid, and it's the big powerful pump. And a second pump runs on solar, and it's not enough to really do what we want day-to-day long-term, but it gives us more time to rectify the larger pump. That would be an example of something really useful. If we had something like we have a pump, plus we have some other form of oxygenization into a pond, like let's say a shop air compressor bleeding off about three pounds of pressure uh, plumbed into some sort of air stone in the aquatic system, that air compressor is going to kick on a few times a day. It's going to need a couple times a day it's going to kick on. And if it didn't kick on, it is going to take a really long time for a great big air compressor like that to fully empty at three pounds PSI. Okay? So that means the pump went off, but we have this flow of oxygen. If we had that set up, it could be procedural. If we had an alarm, the pump's off, the alarm goes off. We're aware of it. Now we go ahead and start bleeding that air into the system. It is fully charged up at that point. We can maybe run a small generator to fill up that air tank a couple, three times, 15, 20 minutes at a time. And we have extensive redundancy built into that system. right? And that's just one example. What What I'm saying is when you have a system and you're relying on it, Two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is more, five keeps you alive, right? How many systems of redundancy can you create into that system? Because no matter how well designed, almost everything can at some point fail. I mean, a tree is about as natural and sustainable as it is, and yet still sometimes trees fall over, even when they're not dead. They can fail. So if if a tree can fail, anything you design can fail. So possible create redundancy in the system. And what I want to finish with today is there is literally nothing in your life that this type of mindset does not apply to. In fact, I want you to think of how much wealthier 
how much wealthier the average person, let's talk about the country's wealth, because the country's wealth includes the wealth of people like, oh, I don't know, Bill Gates, right? Donald Trump, right? I mean, it, the, the wealth of the country includes all the people in the country. And there is a dis, and I'm not even complaining about it. I'm just saying the facts are there's a disproportionate distribution of wealth in society. We have very, very rich people and very, very poor people. And then you have people that are the middle class, the average person who just wants to live life and be left the hell alone. How much wealthier would the, and that's the vast majority of people, how much wealthier would the vast majority of people in our country be if we caught this thinking through primary and secondary school? When something's broken, here's how to fix it instead of getting a new one. Why don't people, like, no, if I would have given this presentation to my grandfather's generation, 15 minutes into it, they would have rolled, I rolled themselves into another dimension, got up and left. So all this guy's talking about is common sense here. Everybody knows this. But today, everybody doesn't know this. Even people that know it don't think this way on a routine basis. And it, it, it permeates so much beyond fixing a widget, right? It's why people watch fire burn the grass and head toward their home or their shed while they have a garden hose and a hose bib. And all they have to do is turn it on because it's not like some giant forest fire. right? It's something that could be rectified. It could be put out. People sit and let it happen. People sit and let it happen. How many things do people let happen that they had everything they needed to solve the problem? Because we've... we've and again, this goes back to... We don't do teaching in this country anymore. We do training. We do training. And training in of itself is not a bad word. Training in the absence of teaching is horrible for humanity. It's domestication. You train to domesticate. You train behaviors. You teach thinking. I'll say that one again. You train behaviors. You teach thinking. You don't train thinking. You teach thinking. Because thinking is, we just went through a method of thinking today, a method of design and troubleshooting today. It's a method, right? It's a method that requires intuition. It's a method that requires independent thought because every situation will be different. You can train behaviors when it will always be the same. I can train you to, with a blindfold on, disassemble and reassemble to a certain degree anyway, an AR-15 slash M-16 rifle. Because the Army does it all the time. I learned how to do it. Every soldier learned. I don't know what they do today, right? But in my time anyway, every soldier could do that in under two minutes without looking at anything because it's a behavior. Okay. You can train the basics of a weapons malfunction. But anybody that's ever spent any real amount of time using weapons knows there are things that can happen to a weapon that require actions beyond the things that you can train because all these things didn't work this system broke beyond what is would be considered field correctable and now requires an armorer to fix it and and that requires a thought process to realize that's where you are and this thing is now a giant club and you better get to club with somebody with it because it's all you got Or go to your sidearm or pick up a dead guy's gun. That requires thinking. 
not simple training. We can train a slime mold to grow a certain way up a tree. You can train a dog to sit. You can train a human to sit. You can train a human to be responsive to a bell. But you can teach a, a person to know when to break their training. But if what your purpose in life is, is control, then you want to train them not to break their training, rather than when to break their training. You want them to do what you want them to do at all times, even when it's not in their best interest, because you're managing human beings the way we manage a herd. I know if I do this, one of these cows might get killed. But I know if I don't do this, all of these cows might be killed. That's the mindset. They're coming at it with the same mindset as that. The individual is the one that can say, if a cow gets killed, it's not going to be me. Or I'm going to do everything I can to not be the one that dies. I'm going to be doing everything I can to not be the one that's a burden on the system. I'm going to be, do everything I can to be infinitely sustainable in my life. And again, there's nothing in our life this doesn't apply to. The, the, the procedure that I gave you is the yeah, training that I received in the military to troubleshoot a vehicle. You train the behavior that is the troubleshooting, but you teach the fundamental understanding of the system to be able to operate the training and to be able to intuit when this isn't going to work the way the book says. Because even with something as mechanical as a Humvee, It doesn't always work out the way the book says. Sometimes there's things that the person that designed it and the person that wrote the book on maintaining it have not yet observed. Here's a real, This is a real-world example. When I was in Honduras in 91, we started having Humvee. The Humvees were brand new to the military then. Uh, not super brand new, but for us they were brand new. Um, they had been in other parts of the world for quite a while. We... I mean, literally, when I got to Panama, the first thing I did was start preparing cut Vs, which are the old blazers and pickup-style trucks, to be returned in exchange for Humvees. That's where we were at. And so it might have been 92 when I, when, I, when I made it to Honduras. And we took all these Humvees with us. And we'd had them in Panama for, you know, a year. We'd never seen this problem. The guys bring me a Humvee. And they said, you know, it's like it's missing. What do you mean, Miss? Like, is it missing? It's not firing a cylinder. Like, you have like a bad spark plug. And you're like, dude, it's a diesel. They don't have. No, I know. I, I know what I'm saying sounds crazy, but look at it. And it would sit there and it would just shake. The whole front end of the vehicle would shake. And it would go away. And then it would shake again. It would go away. It would shake again. And, and they were right. It was literally as if you had a cylinder not firing, unbalancing the motor. But, of course, that could not be what it was. And we started looking at it, and we went from using the technical manual, We did, and no, there was no information about what the hell would cause this. There was no logical way to follow this. So what do you do? First thing you understand the problem, it's intermittent. It comes and goes on its own. Vehicle sitting there idling comes and goes on its own. This has to be something that turns on and off. If it was like when you drive fast, it's gone. When you drive slow, it's on. That would be the human's the variable. But if the vehicle just sits there at idle, it had to be something that was intermittent. Well, what's intermittent? 
What turns itself on and off in this vehicle? Almost nothing. The cooling fan. The cooling fan. That's the place to look. And inevitably, when we fed with the first one that came in like that, when we thought that way, we shined a light down there, and there was two blades missing off a plastic cooling fan, which was rather new for military vehicles. They always had metal ones, but metal ones cut arms and fingers off, and plastic ones have breakaways. So the fan had two of its, of its blades break away. Baha! New fan. Take some bolts out, slap the new fan on, fire it up, works. Yeah, you know, they were on ships, they've been abused by engineers. Eh, who knows what happened, right? Two days later, guy brings a different Humvee in. Same thing. Well, immediately, right now, we've, we're not doing training now. Now we're using learning, teaching. We've learned this thing. <laughs> this is exact. I see, I've seen this before. Open up the hood. That blade missing from the fan. Replace the blade. Now we have to go well beyond training. Now we have to use intuition. What the hell is happening here? Why is this occurring? And eventually what I figured out, we had a river between our camp and the National Guard camp. We were working basically on this road meeting together. And we didn't have this problem until our crews got far enough up that road that they were routinely crossing that river. And because soldiers don't read books and soldiers don't listen and because soldiers are bored, you know what it's real fun to do when you're driving across that river? Drive faster than you should. And spray water everywhere because why not? It's 110 degrees. That is a Humvee. It's made to take a beating. But it's not made to take water up inside the engine area. And water creates resistance And they were literally spraying the water up into the engine compartment. The resistance of the water was enough to break the safety blades off the fan, and that's what was breaking them. You will never get that understood with training. That requires teaching. It requires troubleshooting. When I tell you there's literally nothing this does not apply to in your life, I am serious. When I say all of the world's problems can be solved in a garden, not with a garden, I am dead serious. This thinking is everything. Because what it amounts to is, what do I need? How do I get it? Why isn't it working? How do I fix it? It is the most fundamental skill set that we should be training people in. This was, my again, my grandfather's generation. If it could be fixed, they could figure out how to fix it. Now, The other side of it is a lot of things were engineered a lot more simplistically and a lot more reliably back then. So it's one thing to be able, like my grandfather, to fix a carburetor with a screwdriver and a pocket knife in the middle of a river on the back of an old boat. It's another thing to be able to fix a microchip. I accept that. But in general, most of the things that we write off as unsalvageable could be fixed. And most of the things that can't be fixed we probably don't need. Or they could be engineered better by the manufacturer so that they're more reliable. Or they could be held in reserve as a replacement part. Just saying. It, this, this is part of everything 
that we do as human beings. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that I do, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is General Hydroponics Combo Fertilizer Kit. Um, this is, you know, I am not a big fan of synthetic fertilizers. However, for the application that I recommend this for, you're using such a small amount, I don't think it really matters. I use hydroponics almost exclusively for starting plants at this point. I did some growing because I wanted to make sure that if you needed it, you could indoors. But what I found that it is best for for me is starting plants. And this is more expensive than a master blend, but it's incredibly easy to use, and it's on sale today. So that's why I thought I'd bring it around. It's made up of three parts, Flora Grow, which is your uh, kind of your general purpose mix, Flora Micro, which has your micronutrients, and Flora Bloom, which is really more for... Uh, getting that bloom going at that stage in growth. It has an extra kick of some things to do that. Uh, you can buy the three-part set. If you're only going to be doing plant starting with it, honestly, you can look up and find just the flora grow alone. And if you're going to be growing plants out to like four- to five-week-old starts, it's really all you need. You might want to add a little bit of the micro. You will not need the bloom. Also, if you want to support this show, the other way you can do that is become a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And with that, let's go to our song of the day today. Again, we're doing all highway driving songs today. Um, this one is by the Doobie Brothers. It's called Rockin' Down the Highway. And this was never released as a signal, a, a signal, a single. Um, this is the, 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 the album this was on. Um, is uh, the, the same album that Listen to the Music, right, uh, is on. It was one of their biggest hits ever. Um, I, I listen to this song, and I just think if, if it had been released as a single, it would have been a chart topper. Absolutely. And when I play it, if you're like, I don't really know if I know that song, you might listen like to the first stanza and be like, I'm not sure. When the chorus is, you be like, oh, yeah, I know this song. Uh, unless you're like, you know, 10 years old and, and you don't ever listen to your parents' music, you'll, you'll know this song. Uh, with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Mm -hmm.